It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And uh, again, we've been walking through the names of God in this series and, and looking at uh, some of the more popular names, but I've been trying to find some more of the obscure uh, names of God. I think I mentioned this probably in the first study that we did, uh, is if you read all the names of God from Genesis to Revelation, at least the ones we could find and compile together, um, I think to read it through quickly takes about 12 minutes. So, I mean, there are, there are hundreds of names, um, and I'm trying to at least pull out 28 of the doozies, or at least the ones that I want to study. <laughs> uh, but this morning, I'm looking at one called the Netzer, uh, which is the branch. <clears throat> and just really love this idea, and it's just been a neat blessing to my soul. Uh, I just thought I'd bring you in on it. How, just to set the stage, you realize that in Scripture, there's a lot of language as it refers to agriculture. And here's just how I kind of wrote it out just for us to kind of work with. But the agrarian language is abundant throughout Scripture. Forestation, or this idea of the trees and all the forests, is a key theme used in Isaiah, as is agriculture in Joel. Jesus used such language in his parables. Vine and branches, weeds and seeds, soil and toil were all commonly understood images in an agrarian society. And think about this. Even Adam, as the first created man, was a man of the field. So in Genesis, oh, sorry, just kidding. I'm coming to Genesis. Uh, here's, here's, a, here's a dictionary. Uh, and this is what it said about just this idea of uh, the agriculture. It says, many figures of speech in scripture used to illustrate spiritual truth are taken from agriculture. One such set of ideas has to do with limbs, secondary stems, or new growth on vine, bushes, and trees. More than 20 Hebrew and Greek words are employed to connote this growth, and they've been translated variously as branch, shoot, sprout, tendril, or twig. I mean, this thing just kind of shows up all over the place. Uh, here, here's the Genesis passages. Uh, in Genesis 1.29, God says, Behold, I have given you, speaking to Adam, Every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And in chapter two, chapter 2, verse 15, it says that Yahweh God took the man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And so you have this idea that this agriculture, this agrarian concept starts at the very beginning, and what you see is it weaves itself through even to the very end in the book of Revelation, where you have this tree that is, you know, abundant 12 months of the year, it's on both sides of the river, and you have this language of the trees and the plants and the vines and the fields as a major theme throughout all of Scripture. So then as you come into this idea that our God has a name, and strangely, this name is the branch. And so I want to kind of flesh that out a little bit. Here's what one uh, commentator said about this idea. He says, the branch is one of the Old Testament's most prominent messianic titles. In other words, when you look at this idea of the coming Messiah, one of the major titles or themes or concepts that is associated with the coming Messiah, which we know is Jesus, is this idea of branch. And maybe one of the most clear passages is Isaiah chapter 11. 
So in Isaiah chapter 11, listen to what Isaiah says in verse 1 and 2, and you'll hear this repetition. He says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. It's really interesting as you look at the passage that there is this repetition that's happening. Now, it's using four different words, but there is, in, like, in, in typical Hebrew poetry, uh, there is a parallelism. And in other words, what you have is a shoot and a branch, though it's two different things, is the same concept. Something is coming forth. And what is it coming forth from? A stem, or it could be translated a stump, or a root system. So you have this idea that there is this coming forth, there is this bringing up out of something else. And as you begin to get into this concept, it is phenomenal because what you begin to realize is that what Isaiah is referring to is an olive tree. Now, there's so many layers of profundity in this. I don't think it's by accident that, you know, when Noah sent out the, you know, the, the bird, the dove, it comes back with an olive branch. You start to realize that an olive tree in scripture is more than just some random tree. It's super significant. Uh, one of the ways that you measure an olive tree is not like a normal tree. Like the age of a normal tree, you, you cut the tree and you start counting the rings. At least that's what I was always told when I was growing up in science class. You know, <laughs> I never did it, but I, I've seen the pictures. So I'm presuming it's true, right? Rabbi Google says that's what you do. Uh, so you cut down a tree and, and you, count, you count the little lines and you're like, okay, the age of this tree is this year's because it has this many rings in it. That's not how you measure an olive tree. And, and the reason being is as, as an olive tree grows, it starts to have these knots. It starts to become whole, holy. <laughs> not holy in the sense of righteous and, you know, holy. But there's all these holes in the tree. The tree starts basically falling apart. And so as you look at a tree or an, an olive tree, <clears throat> if you cut it down, you're not going to be able to count all the rings. And so you don't measure the life of an olive tree based on rings. Ponder how cool this is. You measure the life of an olive tree by the root system. And an olive tree surprisingly can be really old. Uh, one of the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you go over to Israel and you go to the garden today, there is one tree in the garden that's over 2,400 years old, which means that tree was there when Jesus was praying in the garden. And that's, that's super cool. And you look at the tree, and, it's, and it's an, it looks like an old tree. But if you were to touch it, and they have it fenced off, so you can't do this. <laughs> but if you were to jump the fence and touch it, do you realize that what you would touch is actually likely not what was there during the time of Jesus? Because this is what's really odd about an olive tree. An olive tree begins to grow up, and then at some point, what you see above the ground actually will die because there's all these holes and knots in it. And that what you see actually falls off. Make any sense? But the tree's not dead because the life of the tree is in the root system. And so what begins to happen then is that which you see, the former actually falls away. And then you actually have something new that comes up from the root system. And so from the root itself sprouts a sprout. And what you have is a shoot. It's called a branch. 
or it's the word netzer. And it's the new shoot, it's the new stem, it's the new thing that comes out of the stump or the root system. So in Isaiah then, when he says, hey, do you know what's happening? We have a stem from the stump of Jesse. A branch is going to come from a root system. Now, there's so many cool layers to this. If you remember, Jesus comes and he's talking. He says, hey, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not abolished. I've come to fulfill. Do you realize that there's actually an imagery of an olive tree in that? That Jesus is of the same root system as the Old Testament. He's not, he is doing something new, but it's not something new in the sense of that they dug up the root system, threw that one away and planted something brand new. The root system of this book is still the same root system. The Old Testament root system is that which Jesus is fulfilling and and performing and, and everything's pointing to him. And yes, that which was former, that which you saw in the Old Testament, that has fallen away. But from the same root system, something has sprouted forth, and now Jesus has a new covenant from the same root system. Does that make any sense to you? That is so profound to me that, yes, a former has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But do you realize, don't, I'm not quoting 2 Corinthians 5.17, okay? <laughs> That's new creature stuff. But do you realize that Jesus is from the same root that the old was based on. So think about this. Isaiah stands up and says, the coming Messiah. Do you know what he is? He is the shoot. He is the branch. He is the, and the Hebrew word is netzer. He is that which comes forth from that root system. And so an olive tree begins to form a whole nother tree out of the same root. It's the same tree and at some point, after you know a few hundred years, that's going to fall away. And then what comes out? Another shoot. So if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane today, you will see this tree that's 2,400 years old. A lot of the other trees in the garden are like seven, eight, nine hundred 900 years old. Some are 1,200 years old. And, and so you have these ancient trees, but likely that what you see was probably not there during the time of Jesus. But the tree, the root system, that was there. That making sense? So that's the imagery that Isaiah is playing on when he comes and he quotes that phenomenal passage in Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. I want you to ponder this. When you you look at a shoot, when you look at the little branch, do you realize it's really not that impressive? Now, if you look at an olive tree, they're beautiful. They're, They're gorgeous. But a little shoot from a stump is not that... You don't go, whoa, look at that stump. And that little out of the middle of it. But do you realize, I think that's purposeful? <clears throat> that, that here's the idea. <clears throat> and, and all of shoot and all of Netzer is humble. It's unimpressive. But that is speaking of the Messiah. L- look at what Isaiah 53 verse 2 says. It says that he, speaking of the coming Messiah, Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot. Do you hear the language? And like a root out of a parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. Here's what one commentator says. He says, the humble origins of the most glorious king and kingdom in history were these, a conquered people in a lowly backwater of the Roman Empire, obscure, poor, and powerless. 
In other words, when you look at where Jesus came from, the fact that he's from this little town called Nazareth, well, when you look at the fact that it's under Roman occupation, it's this little backwater country, it's actually not that impressive. But neither is the shoot. And Isaiah says, do you, do you realize that there was nothing about the physical form of Christ that we were like, whoa, I'm going to follow him. He probably, he, I mean, yeah, he was a stonemason. He probably had some muscles, but he, he probably wasn't the most good looking guy around. Why? Because as Isaiah says, there was, there was nothing in his physical form that would attract us to him, which is encouraging for some of us. Do you realize that this <clears throat> language of the branch actually shows up all over the place? And again, uh, it, it uses a different term for the branch, but as, as many Bible scholars have pointed out, it's the exact same concept. Uh, let me just give you a few of these passages because these are just, these are profound. Now, in my translation, and in, in most translations, they capitalize branch. And so I'm going to read you some passages, and I just want you to notice the fact that the word branch is capitalized because it's not talking about a twig. It's not talking about just a stem or this, this netzer that comes out of a stump. It's referring to the fact that the Messiah who is coming, his name is actually called branch. And therefore, as a name, they capitalized it. So look at some of these. In Isaiah 4, verse 2, in that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious. So though he has no stately appearance, even though he has no physical form that we are attracted to, do you realize that that branch is beautiful and glorious? Or Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 33, verse 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to branch forth and he will do justice and righteousness on the earth. Zechariah 3, verse 8, for behold, I'm going to bring in, get this, my servant, the branch. I love that passage. Or Zechariah 6, verse 12, then you will say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, listen to this, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Do you realize what Jesus is doing? That he is building the temple of Yahweh. In fact, Jesus even said that. I'm going to destroy, and I'm going to rebuild in three days. And of course, they're, they're going, how is that even possible? He's like, I'm not talking about the one you see. There's actually even something greater that's going on. And do you not realize that because of the branch and all that he did, that we are now the temple. We are now the dwelling place of God himself. There's some neat layers in that passage. So take all of that and then bring it into this idea of the Netzerite. There is a passage of Matthew that is deeply profound and stirring to me. And it's this one, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to this. Joseph and Mary, speak, speaking of Joseph and Mary, they came and lived in a city called Netzareth. So that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled, he shall be called a Netzarite, a Nazarene. Now, ponder how cool this is. 
There's all these messianic prophecies of the Old Testament saying, the king is coming. The Messiah is on his way. He's about to be here. And what is his name? Oh, he is the branch. He is that netzer, the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. You getting all this? And then Matthew says, he had to grow up in this little town known as Nazareth. Do you know what Nazareth means? It means the town of the branch. It means branch town, if you will. And the reason Matthew says that Jesus had to grow up in the place called the Nazareth is because he had to be called a Nazarite or a Nazarene. That he is the Netzer. Now, you got to admit, that is cool. So if you want to maybe say it a different way, here you go. The branch lived in Branch Town. <laughs> Isn't that cool? And the branch, the, the, the Netzer, grew up in Netzereth. And he was called a Netzerite. Why? Because he's the Netzer. Isn't this cool? You guys are not awake this morning. I, I think that's phenomenal. Okay, so if you take all of that, come to the end of his life. Here's Jesus. He's in the upper room with the disciples, and he washes the feet and gives these phenomenal declarations in John 13, 14, and 15, and 16. Chapter 17, he goes and he's praying. Do you realize that, that after the whole upper room scene, Jesus makes his way out of Jerusalem, goes down across the brook Kidron, and goes up on this mountain. And it's not just any kind of mountain. It's the mountain of olives. Isn't this interesting? I don't think any of this is by accident. And, and, and so here, here's Jesus. And he's on a mountain of olives, right? So it, there's, this, there's these groves of olives. In fact, uh, if, you, if you go to the Mount of Olives today, there's like the official traditional spots where there's the church and you can see a few olive trees. But if you go across the street, which is usually where we take our groups now, if you go across the street, it's just, it's an, it's an olive grove. It's just a whole bunch of olive trees. And, and so we usually go over there and we just say, okay, let's just spend some time in prayer. And so we just send everybody off and, and we, just, we just spend time praying in this Mount of Olives, which is, doesn't that just sound fun? That's just, oh, it's so cool. And so you have this hillside and it's just full of olives. And it says that Jesus went to a very strategic location. Now, before we even talk about that, I, I need to talk about how olives go from olives to oil. Super profound to me. Uh, grapes are very different than olives. Uh, if you're going to make grape juice or wine, uh, you, you harvest them slightly different than you would do with olives. Uh, with grapes, I don't know if you ever saw the I Love Lucy episode. Uh, this is way beyond most of you, but... Uh, but in the I Love Lucy episode, right, you know, she gets in the, the vat of all the, all the grapes and she starts doing the dance thing. Uh, one, one year we took our, took our group over to, uh, when we were in Israel, um, there's the Naz, uh, in Nazareth, there's a Nazareth village, which kind of has some stuff that is replicating the time of Jesus. Um, and it's fun, <clears throat> but we found a better one actually above the Sea of Galilee, which is what we've been taking our groups to recently. And they've actually found things from the time of Christ. In other words, it's like, some of, the, some of the houses are from that era during the time of, time of Jesus. And, and so one of the things that they do over there up above the Sea of Galilee is that whatever season you're in, you get to do that harvest. 
And so it happens to be the wheat season. They, you actually have, actually have wheat fields. You cut down the wheat fields with the sickle. You actually stomp on it, you know, and you, uh, and, and you thresh it through with a threshing thing. And, and then you actually, you, you have wheat. Uh, one year we were there, it's during the season of the grapes. And they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We, we're going to make some grape juice. And, uh, and so they, they, took the, they took the grapes and they put it in this like big bathtub thing. And they said, all right, everyone, uh, you need to participate. So take your shoes off. And so everyone took their shoes off and they sprayed the feet. That's all, that, all they did <laughs> is there was no foot washing. <laughs> it was a foot sprain. And uh, we, we, sprayed our, we sprayed our feet and then everyone got into the vat of, of the grapes. And they had some handles on the top. And then they turned on some Israeli music and they said, all right, dance. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I can't dance. Uh, but you know, when you have 40 people in one bathtub, you can't dance anyway. You're just like, oh. Uh, and of course, you know, they taught us, if you don't know how to Israeli dance, you just turn the light bulb, you know, it's just that do 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 Anyway, uh, and so we were there and they were turning the music on and we we're all stomping on, on the grapes and, you know, it was crushing. And the reason you use feet, by the way, and typically you use women's feet because they're softer and lighter and more precious, right? But the idea is you don't want to actually crush the pit of the grape because it makes the wine bitter. And so you use feet and so that way you're just crushing and then it just kind of takes this juice and it flows out the end of it and they catch it in the cup. And of course, it is not at all what it looks like in the grocery stores. Apparently, uh, in grocery stores, you know, they take uh, some of the, the either food coloring or they'll take like the grape itself, the skin of the grape, and they'll mix it in. That way you get like that green or the purpley hue. But what came out was like brown, frothy stuff. And I was like, that is nasty. <laughs> that is gross. And, and I learned this later, um, that the moment the grapes are squeezed, it begins to ferment. And so typically within an hour or two, you're actually going to have like the bitter taste of like a, a very cheap wine. And, and of course, if you let it go longer, it becomes wine wine, what we call, you know, what we normally think of wine. And uh, so, you know, we had this frothy brown cup of nastiness. And I'm thinking, man, do you know how many feet spin in that thing now? And it's just, that's so gross. And of course they said, well, now we got to try it because you made it. We got to drink it. And since Nathan's the, you know, the host here, uh, he gets to start. And, and it was bad. Uh, <clears throat> it did taste like feet. But, but that's very different than, than olives. See, when you're doing grapes, right, you don't want to put a lot of pressure because you don't want, to, you don't want the bitterness of, this, of, the, of the pit stuff. When it comes to olives, the only way to get the, the depth of or the, the amount of oil that you need is it has to go through a severe crushing. And so what you typically do is you gather all the olives and, and you go to an olive press. And so here's what one of them looks like. You have this bottom trough and you put all the olives in there and you have this massive millstone thing and it weighs hundreds of pounds. And typically there's a, a piece of wood going through it and you either push it or you tie it to some animal like a donkey. And you just let that heavy weight roll on top of these olives over and over. And basically you're, you're squishing everything down into like this mush or this paste. And you gather all that stuff up and you put it into some baskets and then you actually go, then you take that and you put it over into the press itself. <clears throat> and this is just 
a picture of one, but you, you, you kind of see these baskets. And then over there on the left side, you stack these baskets up. And then what you end up doing is you, you put this weight on top of it, and then you just press it down. And what ends up happening is, is the weight of, of the stones sitting on top of the olive baskets of mush is really squeezing the oil out. Now, here's what's really neat. When you put all the baskets on top of each other, right, there's usually 10, 15 baskets or so, the natural weight of the baskets on top of each other is just naturally going to bring some of the oil out. And this is the most pure, this is the most treasured, precious of the oil. And so what they would do in this first pressing is just the natural weight of the baskets, they would gather that oil, and this is what they would use to send up to the temple. This, is, this was the sacrificial kind of an oil. This is what was used in the menorahs in the temple. And this, this was used in, in the temple stuff. And so we are giving God our very best. And then what ends up happening is you put more weight on it. And, and, and later on, there was eventually a screw thing that you just keep on screwing this thing down. and just puts more and more weight. But, but as you put more weight in, the very first major pressing, right? Not just the basket weight, but the actual pressing, uh, that was used... Oh, I don't have it here. Uh, that, that was used for like your own food. Uh, in other words, you would use that for your cooking. You would use that for all that kind of stuff. And then you put more weight upon all this and you just, you would squeeze every last drop out and you'd use that third pressing for cosmetics. You put it in like to soap and you put it into makeups and, and that kind of thing. You'd use it for your, your little uh, light. Like it's, it's those kind of things. So think about this. Jesus comes to this mount full of olives and it says in Matthew 26, verse 36, that Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. The name Gethsemane, that word means an olive press or an oil press. So just imagine what's taking place here. Here's Jesus, who is the netzer. He's the olive branch. He's the shoot coming up. He's from a place called Netzareth, so that he might be called a Netzerite. And now at the end of his life, right before he was crucified and resurrected, he's on this mountain of olives. And where is he going on the mountain? To this little place down typically in the bottom where they take all of the olives during harvest season. And they actually, this is where they crush the olives to make the oil. And Jesus goes to the place of crushing. Jesus goes to the place of the oil press. And what does he do at the oil press? He prays. So again, here's, here's the screen I was thinking of. So here's the three presses, right? The first natural press is the temple stuff. Then you have the food. And then you have cosmetics and your light. So you have three presses when it comes to the oil. Do you know how many times Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Three times. Look at this. Mark records this in Mark 14, verse 41. And if you remember, Jesus comes to the disciples and says, hey, pray with me. He goes and prays, comes back after an hour, and they're asleep, right? And so he came a third time in Mark 14, 41, and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Matthew records this very specifically, Matthew 26, verse 44. Matthew says that he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. I don't think that's just a coincidence. Why? Because here you have a Netzer from the place called Netzareth, 
so that he might be called a Netzerite and the place of the olives, not just the place of the Mount of Olives, but this place of crushing and this place of agony and this place of where, where the, the extreme pressures of the weight falls upon the olive so that it might be crushed, so that it might give forth oil. And just as there are three pressings of an oil press, Jesus is praying three times in the place of crushing and pressing. That is just profound, folks. So in light of that, listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 2 through 5. And by the way, the whole chapter 53 is phenomenal in light of this whole olive thing. But listen, just this portion. For he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isn't that phenomenal? Let me just give you one other quick layer. Do you realize that Paul in Romans chapter 11 talks about this fact that we as Gentiles are grafted in to an olive tree? And I'd encourage you at some point to read all of chapter 11. I just want to read you a little portion. But there's this idea that that here are, here's, here's Israel, the natural branches, here's the Gentiles, the wild branches. In either case, they both must be grafted into this new root, this branch, if you might. That, that we as Gentiles are grafted into something. What are we grafted into? His life. And he is that olive tree. That we as Gentiles have the privilege and the blessing of being grafted into. Here's just a couple of verses. Romans 11, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, But as some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Isn't that a great language? Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast against them, remember that it's not you who supports the root, it's the root that supports you. And just as Jesus uses vine and branch language in John 15, Paul uses olive tree language and grafting in in Romans chapter 11. Do you realize that in Christ, you do have everything you need? That you get to experience his life, his root system. I, I read this passage all the time. It's one of my favorites. But look at what 2 Peter verse 1, 3 through 4 says. Peter says that seeing that Jesus' divine power has given or granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, for by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, listen to this, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That we don't have to live as we've always lived. We don't, always, we don't have to do what we've always done. Why? Because we are grafted into a new life source. That you and I get to participate and partake 
of his divine nature. Why? Because we've been grafted in. And now we have access to his life. Uh, Perhaps one of my all-time favorite passages in Scripture. I, I think that one passage, if I was to point to one passage that summarizes the entirety of Scripture or the one passage that summarizes the entirety of the gospel, if I only get like one passage, I think I might choose this one, which is Romans eleven thirty six, which Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Do you know what the fullness of the gospel is? The fullness of the gospel is from him, through him, to him for his glory. Do you know how you should define your life? Your life should be from him, through him, to him for his glory. If you're married, marriage is supposed to be from him, through him, to him for his glory. That if you're in work or ministry or school, that your labor of love should be a from him, through him, to him for his glory. See, this is all about him and what he's wanting to do and accomplish in and through you. He is the branch. So what I'd like to do just as a way to close and just ponder this phenomenal reality is I, I want to take all those passages that we previously talked about in, you know, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah because they each have these little nuances about the branch. And I want to kind of just put them all into like a little paragraph. And I want you just to behold the branch. The fact that he is the high and lifted up one. That he is glorious and, and, and worthy to be seen. So listen to this. Jesus, the branch, the Netzer, is a humble servant who is righteous and will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. He will rebuild the temple of Yahweh, God's dwelling place within his people, and he will be revealed as absolutely beautiful and all-glorious. Do you realize that our precious Savior is the branch? He is that high and lifted up one. Isn't that beautiful? And he was crushed on your behalf. So you have this netzer, this little shoot coming up from the stump. It's a brand new thing from the same system, the same root, but it's a brand new covenant. And that shoot, that Netzer, was born in a place called, or not born, he grew up in a place called Netzerith, so that he might be called a Netzerite. And then he goes into this mount of the Netzers so that he might actually be crushed as all of us are intended to be crushed. And all that was because of you. I think that's beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just dumbfounded by the reality of your word and how you are using everything in it to declare the wonders of who you are. Lord, thank you that you are the branch, that you are the servant, the man called the branch who grew up in a place called Branch Town so that you might be known as the man, the branch from the branch so that you could actually come to a place into a garden full of these branches and actually be crushed and pressed and something might actually flow from you. Lord, that is so mind-boggling to me. 
And the fact that here I am as a Gentile and I get to be grafted into your life, that's so amazing. And Lord, I just stand in awe of who you are. We love you, Jesus. Just give the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.